Well, good morning, everyone. And um, this is kind of an unusual way to start a sermon, but what I'd like you to do is actually close your eyes. Okay? All right. I'm looking. I want to make sure your eyes are closed. All right? Are your eyes closed? All right. This is what I want you to do while your eyes are closed. I want you to picture Jesus. All right? Jesus is standing right in front of you. I want you to think about what Jesus looks like. Pay attention to his nose. What does his nose look like? What does his face look like? What do his lips look like? What do his eyes look like? What does his hair look like? Can you imagine him? What do his hands look like? Do you have that picture? Open your eyes. Okay. I want to show you the picture that hung in my house as I was a kid growing up. This is the photo, or painting, okay? And so oftentimes when I think of Jesus, that, that, that's kind of been influenced in, in my brain about what Jesus might look like, right? And here's the thing. I think that when all of us, when we close our eyes and we imagine Jesus, he, he either kind of looks like us or a member of our family, we kind of make him familiar to us, right? And here's the thing that we sometimes forget is that, um, you know what? Jesus probably didn't look European like me, okay? He was from the Middle East. He probably was a little darker, a little tanner than me, which isn't hard to do, right? <laughs> so there was a, a, a professor he was an anatomical artist and scientist from the University of Manchester. And he was able to get a hold of these ancient skulls from about 2,000 years ago, from the time of Jesus in the area of Galilee, Nazareth, and Israel. And so the, the archaeologists in Israel gave him these skulls, and they allowed him to x-ray them. And then from there, they were able to put the muscles on there, and then skin, and they assumed that Jesus probably looked like the average person from that area. And the reason they, they said Jesus probably looked average like everybody else is because they took their clue from the Bible, that when Judas had to identify Jesus on the night he was betrayed, the only way for him to identify him was to kiss him, because he looked like all the other disciples. Judas didn't say, oh, he's the blonde-haired guy with blue eyes. No, he had to go kiss him because he looked like everybody else. So they took these skulls, and they took kind of an average of what they would look like, and they put skin on, and they made it kind of dark like the people that live there now, and they gave him the kind of hair that the people would have had lived in that area. And lo and behold, do you want to see what it looked like? Sure. All right, here's the, here's the picture. That's what they came up with that Jesus looks like. Now, when... When I first looked at that picture, I thought, I thought Jesus was going to be more handsome than that. <laughs> right? You know, because it, it just, it, maybe some women in that day and age in Palestine maybe thought he was a really cool dude or something. But when I'm looking, I'm thinking, he just really doesn't look that handsome. And I was reminded of what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
Jesus looked like every other ethnic person that lived there in that day. Our Lord and God, when he chose to come down from heaven and to visit us, to be present with us, he chose to be an ethnic Jew. And you know what? He chose to do it at a time when the Roman oppressors were there, the Roman Empire was there. And so here he was, an ethnic Jew, in the Roman Empire. And so he knew what it was like to be oppressed. He knew what it was like for people to show partiality and prejudice to him. And you know what else? He was born to a poor carpenter. And before that, too, he was born. And because of genocide or infanticide of a crazy king, he and his family had to flee to Egypt and become refugees in another land. He and his family were poor carpenters, so he knew what it was like to be poor. When Jesus came, he didn't come just to care for the poor. He became one of them. Jesus wants us to remember that he cares about the poor and that he knows their plight and he knows the difficulties that they face. He knows the persecution. And it was the same thing that was beginning to happen in the church. And this is what James wants to address. Because people were taking the worldly idea that people with wealth were better than people who were poor. And they wanted to bring that value into the church. And there was no place for it. And James is there to address it. And so I'd like you to find your Bibles, the book of James that we've been studying. I'm at chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The first thing that James does is he addresses us as brothers. So it's a message for the church, the ones who believed in Jesus Christ, that knew him as a personal savior. But there's a problem too. He, he, he also adds one more thing. Did you notice he said, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the ESV it says, the Lord of glory. And the Greek, it, it comes out, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a common way, a title for Jesus Christ. But then James adds the word glory. And this is the only place that this happens in the New Testament. I think that's because 
James wants to point something out, that Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our glory. And he wants us to remember, too, from the Old Testament, God's Shekinah glory. That when God was present, it's glorious. If we read from Hebrews 1.3, it says, He, that is Jesus, is a radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. James wants to bring our attention to the fact that Jesus is the only glorious one. And glory alone belongs to God. And these people had a worship problem because they were starting to give glory to certain people that were walking into their church. And that's partiality. It's prejudice. It's evil and it's wrong. And even if I stand as a party and ignore it, I'm still wrong too because God wants me to address it. Discrimination against people is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek word here that's used for partiality um, could not be found in any secular writings in that day and time. They had to borrow a word from the Hebrew to create the word in Greek, the word for favoritism, and that we're not to be partial. And the word actually comes from the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He is not partial and takes no bribe. That's the word, not partial. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Our heavenly father shows no favoritism. He loves the poor. He loves the widow. He loves the orphan. He loves the one, the immigrant, who's following into our space and who is here. And he wants us to love them and care for them too. Again, the word for, for partiality here too is in the imperative. So James is telling us, do not show partiality. It's a command. We are not to do it. And so he's coming to us, brothers. He said brothers. Brothers who believe in Jesus Christ. Brothers who glorify the only true glorious one, Jesus Christ. Don't do this. It's evil. It's wrong. You know, the other thing too is I believe they had to come up with this new word because of the church. The church was a place where Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, poor, rich, white, black, everything, they all came together in one place. And because they were together at the cross, they all became believers and they were all a part of the church. And God forgave them equally because they were all depraved equally before they got there, but God forgave them equally and loves them equally. And so here they were in the church, and, and there may have been a situation where a, a former slave and his owner were there together, and now the slave is a deacon, and he has some spiritual guidance over the one who was the one who actually was over him in the secular world. And so it was a strange place. It was a new place. They had to come up with a new word to figure out how everyone could understand what it meant to 
be equal in the eyes of God. Our Heavenly Father has no favorites, and He loves each one of us equally. We're equally depraved before we knew Him, but we're equally forgiven, we're equally saved, equally loved. The problem is that sometimes God's children don't love like God loves. The word in the Greek for partiality also means receive the face. It meant that you judged a person based on what they looked like. You know, it could be their skin color. It could even be um, their religious affiliation because you could identify that because they were wearing a scarf or a yarmulke. It may even be the fact that they had a certain accent so you knew where they came from. And so people based and judged on that. Is that any different from what happens today? 2,000 years later? Now, when I bring up that word partiality, there is also a sense in that of prejudice. And you knew that's where I was going, right? And prejudice is wrong. And prejudice is a scary thing to talk about because it brings up emotions for all of us. For me, just right away when I think of that, I, I think of seeing images as a child of Selma, Alabama, and people walking across a bridge and being tear-gassed and beaten and attack-dogged at them. I also think about the 90s, and I think of Reginald Denning, and I think of a man who was pulled from his truck, and the people were beating him, and they showed that on the news over and over again. And it was all because of the color of their skin. It's hatred. It's wrong. It's evil. Satan wants to use the diversity that God has created, that he has created that's beautiful. Satan wants to use that to cause division and hatred and strife and death. God wants to redeem that. God wants to bring reconciliation God wants to bring people together because Jesus Christ is the only one who reconciled us to God while we were yet sinners. And even as sinners, he can reconcile us to one another, that we can love one another in the very way that God created us. God will have victory, and God is the victor. Through Christ, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are beloved children. In Christ, we're no longer found by bound by chains and fear and prejudice, but brothers and sisters in Christ, bound by the love of Christ. The U.S. Census says that in the year 2020, which is only four years from now, that as many minority babies will be born as Anglo babies. And so there will be this, they'll start this shift where there will no longer be one race that'll be in a majority. <clears throat> and within that generation, within 24 years later, in the year 2044, no race will be in the majority. We will basically all be minorities. Now, some people think that that's going to solve the problem, that we won't have difficulty with race relations because no one would be in the majority. And some people think that, well, if, if uh, blacks were in majority or Hispanics were in the majority or Asians were in the majority, 
then it would be different. It would be better. But you know what? That's not true. Because every single person, no matter who they are, what color they are, has a problem. And that problem is sin. And the only way that that sin problem can be taken care of is faith in Jesus Christ, the one and only glorious one. Amen? And so, brothers and sisters, I plead with you, if we don't get this right, the world and our community can't get it right. Because we are the only ones who recognize that at the cross we are all equal. And we are equally loved by our Father. Some people say that the answer is that we need to be colorblind. You know what? I examine eyes every day. And I think that is a silly idea. And here's why I say that. Um, we're going to put up a slide. And this is a color vision slide. Hopefully everyone sees the number 12. That's, that's a trick plate. So when you go to the doctor and you say you don't see the 12, he knows you're lying. Right? Now, some of you see on the other side a 74. All right? Here's the thing. If you are not colorblind, you see the 74. Even if you're color deficient, you might sort of see the 74. And the 74 appears because there's differences in the colors. Right? The beauty comes because there are colors there. Now, I could take all the orange ones and move them to one side and segregate and put all the blue on the other side. Not a good idea. It communicates nothing. Right? The beauty and the communication of God about the beauty and diversity of this world comes about because there is diversity. God is the one who created each one of us in his image, and he loves us equally. And he created that diversity, and we should honor it. Let's see the next slide. That's colorblindness, okay? If you really were totally colorblind, that's what you see. Shades of gray. And you know what? I think shades of gray is an insult. And the reason I say that is because when I was in high school, I was in an anthropology class, and um, the teacher decided that, you know, this evolutionary thing, we're going to show how everybody is arranged from race to the other, and we're all, okay. So anyway, the blonde hair kid was over here, the African-American kid was over there, and they lined everybody up as they can do it. Well, you can't tell right now, but when I grew up, I had red hair. It didn't look like brown hair. It didn't look like blonde hair. It was red hair. And you know what? The teacher didn't know where to put me. I didn't belong. He said to go stand over there. We're not going to put you in this. Because you know what? Evolution doesn't explain it. God created it. God created the diversity. And we are to celebrate it. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not pray that we would all be the same or for sameness. He prayed that we would be unified for unity. Just as he and the Father are one, 
Jesus Christ calls us as brothers and sisters of diversity, but who belong to him, to be united in Christ. And so, you can write this down if you didn't already. I will show no partiality. So, I have five questions for you regarding favoritism. Who's on the throne of glory? All right? If it's not Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to get this right. And that's why, because here it is. You can't have the Father's perspective unless you have a relationship with the Father. So if you don't realize that you have a sin problem and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're not going to have any capacity to make sure that you put only Jesus on the throne. You're going to throw yourself up there. Number two, have my preferences become partiality or favoritism? It's okay to like a certain kind of Bible study, and, but if I'm starting to like a certain kind of person and show preference to a certain kind of class, whether it's education or race, Ever it is, it's wrong. Have I claimed the promise to not show partiality? And the reason I say it's a promise because in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation. And isn't James a book of temptations? Talking about temptations. The, the illustration we're going to see involves money. But it, it's a temptation to show partiality, preference. But no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a command, but God tells us that he will hold us up under any temptation to show partiality and make a way of escape or help us endure what it is that's causing us to think that that's okay. It's a promise. Now, do I enjoy diversity? Do I know people that look different than myself? And am I willing to go out and meet and get to know people that look different than myself? And it could be awkward at first. And you may misunderstand one another and miscommunicate. But you know what? As brothers and sisters in the Lord, continue to persevere. Continue to hear listen and get to know and love the other person. As Pastor Dave said last week, it's um, one person, one relationship at a time. Do I strive for unity? Am I striving for unity in the church? Not sameness, but unity. You can write this down. I will not become an unrighteous judge. I'm going to read from verse 2 through 4. For if, this is an illustration now. So now we've gotten the command, and now we're moving to an illustration. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. The, the situation is kind of hypothetical 
but we have to remember that the church was starting to come under persecution. And so people were being pushed out of their homes. And they were poor now, many of them. And here's two visitors coming into a church house. And one of them, it's described, these clothing is described as shiny in the Greek. So gold rings, shiny clothes. This brother's coming in with some bling on, okay? He's looking shiny. He's looking nice, right? Now, here's the problem. When the man walks in and he's dressed himself in glory, it's supposed to remind us of verse 1. Who gets the glory? The only one who should have glory? Jesus Christ, right? Yet here's this guy walking in and putting glory and shiny on himself and one of the brothers in the church, you know, this visitor may not even be a believer, but the believer who's showing him to a seat because he's a visitor is saying, ooh, you know what, you come sit up front. And you know what, that's partiality, it's a sin. Because here's the thing, anytime that I take my attention off of giving glory to the only one who's deserving of glory, the only one who's worthy of my worship, and I'm putting it on somebody else, it's wrong and it's a sin. And if I'm doing it in front of other people too, and they don't say or call me on it, it's sin too. And it doesn't matter about the chair, the seat isn't the problem. Because we could say only poor people can sit in the front, or only poor people sit in the back. Or maybe we can say only educated people sit in the front, and uneducated city people sit in the back. Anything like that is wrong, it's prejudice. But here's the thing, it's not the seat's problem. Because every single one of these seats in this place are here for solely one purpose a tool and an instrument to help you to come in here and to glorify the one and only glorious one. And it doesn't matter if your seat is in the front right there or if your seat is back in the cry room next to the poopy diaper in the garbage can. It's a place for you to come and meet Jesus and to experience his manifest presence. The problem was the sin of partiality, not the seat's. I read in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We're the ones who make distinctions. We're the ones with evil thoughts. When I show partiality, I am disagreeing with God that each person is equal, that each person holds equal value, equally loved of God because he created each person in his image. And I've bought into the world system that says that some people are more valuable than others. And that's not true. And I've bought into the thought that I'm going to hang with this rich person because I might get something. And I don't want to hang with that person that who's poor because they're going to just be taking, taking, taking from me. Right? The poor people that were in the churches had been marginalized and persecuted in their society. And there was no place in no way that James says that's going to happen in the church. There's no place for that in the church. 
There's no place for that in God's kingdom. I want to show you a, a photo of a, a gentleman. His name is uh, Dr. John Perkins. And I, I show this photo because um, he was a, a, a civil rights activist in the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, he was part of the nonviolence movement. And um, even though he was nonviolent, it didn't mean that the people that were against him weren't violent against him, right? And so I, I'm going to read something to you that happened to him. Um, some students had been um, at a rally of his that day, and they got picked up by some police because they were identified as being a part of a, a civil rights nonviolence march. And uh, when he went in, they, they nabbed him and arrested him too. And this is what happened to him while he was there in the cell with his captors. They began to torture him. And I'm reading from, which is kind of his biography, Let Justice Roll Down by Dr. John Perkins. When they started torturing us, it was horrifying. I, I couldn't even imagine this was happening. One of the officers took a fork that was bent down and he brought that fork up to me and he said, have you seen this? And he took that fork, put that fork into my nose, and then he took that fork and pushed it down my throat. They were like savages, like some whore out of the night. And I can't forget their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at white-faced demons. Hate did that to them. But you know, I, I couldn't hate back. When I saw what hate had done to them, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I didn't even want to hate to do, hate to do that to me, what it had already done to them. And then later, after he was in the hospital, he wrote this, I began to see with horror how hate could destroy me, destroy me more devastatingly and suddenly than any destruction I could bring on those who had wronged me. I could try and fight back as my brothers had done. But if I did, how would I be any different from the whites who hate me? He goes on to say that he had a picture of Jesus on the cross. And he realized that Jesus was a victim of hate. And that they lynched him and murdered him. And that on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And the Spirit of God convicted him. The Spirit of God kept working on me until I could say with Jesus, I forgive them too. I promised him I would return good for evil, not evil for evil. And God gave him a love for other people. We're called to do the same. We're called not to show partiality. And when we're, we become the victim of other person's partiality, we're not to hate in return, but to love them as Dr. Perkins did. Here's five ways to keep from partiality, okay? Number one, repent from any prejudice, past or present, that you may have perpetrated. And where possible, seek reconciliation because that honors God. Second, have you been the victim of partiality? 
And if so, how can you find your identity in healing in Christ? Third, seek to find a God-honoring relationship with someone that's different than you and build a bridge through friendship. Four, surrender where God would have you live. Ask God where he would have you live. The Reverend Dr. John Perkins believes in reconciliation, three R's, reconciliation, but the second is relocation because when we do as Jesus did, come and live among the people, then we get to know what's going on and what's happening. And we often don't always think about, God, where would you have me live? Where can you use me to be the most effective for you and for your kingdom? And then five, educate yourself about the issues facing different races. And read and imagine yourself in the other person's shoes. Develop a heart of compassion. You can write this down. I will not dishonor God. When we show partiality, we dishonor God. And we dishonor God when we show partiality toward the poor. I read from verse 5. Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Listen. He's going to now kind of put together an argument about why we shouldn't show partiality. And even though it's an argument, an argument has kind of happened in our heads, don't get me wrong because James is there and he has an arrow and he's got it pointed at your heart. He wants to get to your heart. And that's why he calls you and me beloved brothers. He wants us to get this. Because if we don't get this right, then there's a chance that maybe we don't belong to the kingdom of God. So he wants to make sure. From 1 John 4 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In the second half of verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? You can write this down as well. I will honor whom God honors. And I'm going to have us go back just a couple books in the Bible to Galatians 9 and 10. It says, And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceiving the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here we have James, Peter, and John, leaders in the church. They're getting ready to send out Paul and Barnabas. And the very thing they tell them to do is honor the poor. God loves the poor. God wants us to care for and love the poor as well. Whether they're, and, and there's no distinction whether they're believers or unbelievers. God just says, love the poor. James said, remember the poor. Now, when we read this example, The illustration is, is, is perhaps 
a rich, unbelieving man, and then uh, the, the poor man is a believer. And I don't want you to think in any sense that rich people aren't believers and all poor people are believers. It's not true. This is just an argument that John, James is making. He wants us to understand that that's just the scenario that he's using. The Jews were dispersed because of prejudice and partiality. And there was poverty in the church. And James wanted to make sure that they all understood and knew that they were loved equally of God. And do you know why the poor are rich in faith? It's because day by day, they know what it's like when we pray, give us our day, our daily bread. Because they know that the only way they're going to get a meal the next day is if God shows up and gives it to them. And that's why the poor are seen as the heirs of the kingdom. And that is an allusion back to Luke 6.20 from the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I believe that when we love the poor the way that God loves them, God wants to bless us. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel, bless us financially. I mean, God wants to bless us with blessings. As we care for the poor and love the poor, he exposes the things in our hearts that may be changed into his likeness. Like I said before, Dr. Perkins believes in relocation. So move to an move to the place where the poor are if you want to care for and love the poor. And uh, in 1990, my wife and I understood that God was calling us to do that same thing. So we moved to the inner city. We moved to North Lawndale. And as we were there, we started to work with a church plant to to Spanish-speaking people. And God soon made it so that I started learning Spanish. And that's a miracle. Because when I was in high school... My second year, because you had to take two years of Spanish, my second year of Spanish, my Spanish teacher told me, you should drop this class and take shop because you, son, are never going to learn Spanish. And yet there I was, by God's grace, learning and understanding and became conversational in Spanish. And that's a miracle enough in itself, except that now... God has put a call on my, my, my wife and I, an invita- open invitation to be a part of what's going on in Romania. And you know what? In Romania, even though it's in Eastern Europe, it's not a Slavic language. It's a, a Latin language, much like Spanish. So isn't it God's provision to prepare us and to take care of us and ready us for what he has for us? I'm reading from, from 6 to verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. And for this, I'd like to show you a video. My sister and her family have lived in New York for like eight years now. She took care of me when I was a little kid because my parents were working. 
Every Sunday I cook, and so my uncle calls me, and um, he'll be like, hey, what you making? Nobody meets in bars anymore, but I, I met my wife in a bar, and, uh, you know, 34 years later, still working. <laughs> My grandma had a lot of costumes from the theater that she started. When we were kids, we'd dress up in those costumes and we'd put on little sketches for the family. In my whole life, I've always felt like we were like a team, my brother and I. I think there's nobody who can understand you quite like your family. That's my cousin. That's really weird. I know she's not homeless, because I just hung out with her a couple weeks ago, but I mean, it's, I did not know that that person walking, when I was walking by, it was her. <laughs> it's, you know, and things are a lot more real than you expect, so. God calls us to love the poor. They were being dishonored in this example illustration in the church. We often do the same thing. In our hurry, in our haste, we walk past them and we don't see them. We don't even see their faces. If our family members were there, would we have hurriedly walked past them as well? When we show partiality, it's a sin because it's a failure to love the other person. It's a failure to love other people who have been made in the image of God. You can write this down. I will honor God's name. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme? 
the honorable name by which you were called. There weren't any banks, so the rich would borrow and lend to the poor. And they would use that as a weight to be able to confiscate their property. And they were dishonoring the poor. They were ungodly rich oppressors. And that's the other person in our example. These same people were slandering God because they were using God's name in vain. And they were using the judicial system to slander Christ and to slander Christians. But we are called to honor God's name as a Christian. We are called to walk with Christ, to look like Christ when we walk with him. We belong to Christ as a Christian. That's what it means. And we should look like we belong to him. We should be following the guidance of what this book asks us to do. And then doing so, the people around us should identify us as Christians because we live by what it says in this book. Here's five ways to honor God by honoring the poor, by loving the poor. Work to get a biblical perspective about poverty and the poor. Just, you know what, we all have Bible apps. Pull out your Bible app and just search the word poor. You're going to come up with 180 hits with 172 verses. Or look up Sojourner, um, and that's going to get 131 hits. Number two, maybe you want to consider going and volunteering at a homeless shelter, a food pantry. Number three, keep some money and food in your car, or maybe even get a meal, and you might want to walk up to someone that you see on a corner. And maybe it's somebody that you see over and over again. Maybe one day you want to get out of your car and go over and talk to them. Get to know them. Find out why they're homeless. It might have been a tragedy or an illness or something that caused that to happen. Now, you might find out that they're mentally ill. And there may not be a whole lot you can do for that person except pray for them. But praying for them might be the very thing that they need. You might volunteer at a pregnancy center because some women think that their only way to take care of their child is to, to abort them. They have no other choices. Help make a choice. Maybe you want to tutor a child that's in a dysfunctional school system. And lastly, if you are aware of any kind of partiality that happens within this church, I want you to bring it up to an elder or to one of the pastors. Because you know what? It's a sin, and we don't want sin in our church. We want to be able to investigate it and address it, even if it's small. Because God's plan of reconciliation and restoration is much better and much bigger than any sin that could walk through the door. Because the Spirit of God abides in you and abides in me, we can, through the Holy Spirit, not show partiality. Because the Spirit is in us, every seat in this house is designed to give glory to the one and only Jesus Christ. We're here to worship Christ. And together we can show in our diversity there is unity under the body of Jesus Christ. He is our spiritual head. As ones who are known as Christians, we can honor God's name by living by what it says in the Bible, living obedient lives, walking with him. Because Jesus Christ 
paid the ultimate price and sacrifice for each one of us. And because he did that, he is the one and only glorious one, worthy of all glory. Let's pray.